So we're still on this book, which we've been doing for a few years also. Um, and we're now on the chapter called Inspiring Compassion in Ourselves and Others. Yeah. So let's um, start with just a few minutes of silent meditation, and then we'll have the talk. And if I don't talk too long, there will be time for Q&A. But you know me when I get going. So kindness and kind speech is in short supply uh, nowadays in this country. So it's easy to get pulled by the news and join in with the criticism and anger and cynicism. That is that are very prevalent. But we're people who have made a very conscious decision to focus on kindness, not on criticism. And so to train the mind to see kindness in others. And even when we see faults, to remember that those people mean well, but they're completely under the control of their afflictions. And so in that way, rather than have a malevolent intention against them to see the afflictions as the problem, and want to help them to destroy their afflictions. And so in that way, we have compassion for the person, but see the real enemy as ignorance, anger, attachment, and all of their good friends, like jealousy, arrogance, So remember how our lives are dependent on other living beings and how without them them doing all the different jobs they do in society, how we would be unable to stay alive just by ourselves. In that way, cultivate compassion towards all beings.
and cultivate the determination to be able to benefit them. But in order to do that, we have to clean up our own lives and clean up our own minds first. And so we remain humble, despite having a very high intention, or maybe because of having a very high intention, to become fully awakened Buddhists so we can be of the greatest benefit. So with that intention, we'll share the Buddhist teachings this morning. So, chapter 54, Inspiring Compassion in Ourselves and Others. Okay. So this is um, a chapter that Russell, the uh, psychologist, wrote. Yeah, because we co-authored the book, authored the book. Um, so uh, I'll read it, as I always do. And... Uh, and then make some comments about it, even though I am not a psychologist. But that doesn't matter. We psychoanalyze everybody anyway, don't we? Give people psychological diagnoses, even though we don't even know them. You know. Okay, so here it says, Compassion spreads. As we've discussed, when we feel cared for and supported by others, we're more able to offer care and support to others. Okay, so he does it in the sense of other, we feel care and support from others, and then we are more likely to give care and support. And that's very true. But if we hang around and wait for care and support from others, without giving any to others to start with, uh, you know, what are we expecting from the world? <laughs> yeah. So it's good to start with giving the care and support, and then that actually creates the cause to receive it. Okay. So here again, the three types of emotion figure in. So he talks, uh, it's coming here. He talks about, yeah, three kind of categories of emotion. Uh, threat emotions, um, driving, driven emotions, and safety emotions. Okay. So he says, when we feel threatened, we will focus on the perceived danger and protecting ourselves from it. When our drive emotions are running the show, it's more difficult to attend to others because we're fixated on achieving whatever goal has captured our attention. Okay, so you can see both of these depend on the self-centered mind. I feel threatened, so then I'm my whole way of looking at others is I build walls and I stand back and I make sure and protect myself. Or my drive emotions are functioning, so I want something from others. Yeah, I want to close a business deal. I want them to appreciate me. I want them to praise me, whatever it is. So you can see with either of those, uh, yeah, I mean, it's all filtered through me, I, my, and mine. And then he says, alternatively, when we feel safe and connected to others, our defenses relax and we're better able to see things from a more compassionate perspective. And that's true, but there's the danger of getting attached in there, too. Yeah, the self-centered uh, thought comes in even when we feel safe, because then we start feeling entitled. Yeah, 
and we start expecting certain things and so on. So compassion is truly the gift that keeps on giving because when we behave compassionately towards others, we become the secure base from which they can act upon their own compassionate intentions. So here it's saying, okay, it starts with us. Yeah, instead of waiting for others to be the secure base who make us feel safe, we become uh, somebody that they can talk to, that they can feel comfortable about uh, around. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because we always hear, you know, people are always saying, if only so-and-so would do da-da-da, then... I would feel DDD and and very happily reciprocate. So, yeah, you be kind to me first, and then I'll think about being kind to you. Buddhism, you know, inverts that and says, no, first we have to think about how others have been kind to us and give to others, yeah, and without expecting anything in return, but if we enter, you know, into relationships like that, then others will feel quite safe around us and quite naturally, you know, there will be reciprocal warm emotions. You can probably think of people you've encountered who naturally seem to spread goodness, inspiring others to be at their best. Okay, if we look closely, can you think of somebody, let's pause for a minute, think of somebody in your life who, uh, yeah, really inspired you, you know, to kind of, um, yeah, use your abilities and talents to come out of your shell. If we look closely, we notice that these people have characteristics that we can cultivate in ourselves. People who act with compassion help others connect with it through the power of modeling. In modeling, we use our own actions to demonstrate the behavior we'd like to see from others. Warning. If we have the intention... I am going to be a model for others so that they will like me and copy my behavior and think I'm so inspiring. If you engage with that motivation and try and model good qualities, you're going to fall flat on your face, okay? And you're going to feel like unappreciated, ignored, and so on, because the motivation is is again self-centered. It's not just it's not coming from a kind heart. We all learn from observing one another, and every interaction is an opportunity to teach and inspire others through our behavior. So that's true. If we have the proper attitude. You know, we can do so much good just in in tiny actions. So one thing I, Russell, tried to slip in into nearly every psychology class I teach is if you want to be a good parent, become the person you want your child to be. That's excellent advice, isn't it? Yeah, if you want to be a good parent, you act like you want your child to act. Okay, now I don't know about your parents, but I was told, do as I say, not as I do. (laughs) Okay, did any of you have that? Yeah, in other words, you know, uh, I'll tell you how to behave, but uh, when I don't behave that, that way, don't you copy my behavior. Children are quite smart, yeah, they see when uh, when we're being hypocrites. Yeah, and so often uh, we what we learn from our parents is either bad behavior because they do it, so why why shouldn't I? Or we learn we see oh, mom and dad are acting like that. I don't like that, 
And then we think, I don't want to be like that. And that kind of learning can be very helpful because we see, you know, oh, if I act that way, this is how I appear. And, and I don't want to appear that way to the rest of the world. I don't want to be that kind of person. Okay, so our children learn by interacting with us and observing our behavior. So the best way to teach them qualities such as compassion is to cultivate these qualities in ourselves so we will consistently model this behavior for them. Okay, but often I think in families, we feel like, well, we're so close and we know each other so well that I don't need to go out of my way to even be polite or to do anything special because, you know, we're all related and so we just kind of, you know, let our hair down, so to speak. Okay. Um, and then we take the people in the family for granted. We say all sorts of horrible things. Yeah. And think about it. Who do you say the most horrible things to? The people that you love the most or strangers? Would you ever say to a stranger what you throw on top of people that you care about? Yeah. And it's amazing, isn't it? How in so many instances we treat the people who are most important in our lives the worst way. Yeah. Never, we never say please, thank you, you know, like throw manners out the, out the window. And our speech is, you know, do this, do that, or why don't you do this, or why did you do that? Yeah. And uh, that doesn't work very well. <laughs> okay. And that, that's what we get in return when we speak to people like that. That comes right back at us. And for kids, then the kids start to model their behavior, you know, after that. Okay, so Russell, again, is speaking of his own experience. He says, when I was an intern finishing up my PhD in clinical psychology, I had a supervisor named John who directed the cognitive behavioral therapy clinic at the hospital. At this point in my life, I was trying to figure out the sort of professional I wanted to be, and John was a good model. He was competent, successful, and well-liked. What does successful mean? I think that's an interesting word. Yeah. What does successful mean? Yeah. Is it money? Yeah. Does money equal success? If you have a lot of money, are you successful? Yeah? Ask Donnie. <laughs> yeah? Ask, ask any of the people in you know, Forbes, what is it, 500, 400, 600? I don't know. But, you know, if they're happy. Money? Yes. Happiness? That's another ball game. Okay, so he goes on. Um, I learned a lot and thrived under John's supervision, even when doing tasks I didn't really like. And then he says, watching and critiquing videotapes of yourself doing psychotherapy can be brutal. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that everyone else who worked under John was also happy, hardworking, and engaged, and that the patients in the clinic benefited a lot from our services. When you find a model like this, it's worth it to pay attention. John was exactly the sort of professional I wanted to be, so I started observing how he did things. Yeah. Now, this is smart. He started learning by observing. I find that people in the West are not very sharp in this aspect. They don't learn by observing so well. They need to be told repeatedly 
<laughs> yeah. In Asia, at least my experience in Asia, in the monasteries, is you really, and you really learn by observing. Yeah. You pick it up through osmosis, through being in that environment and seeing, uh, how to act towards people and what to do. What I saw was kindness, consistency, encouragement, and compassion. Not in a showy way, but in a steadfast one. John was very friendly and always had a kind smile for everyone. His job was to supervise and and train his students and staff, and he offered constructive criticism, but always kindly and genuinely. He never caused anyone to feel stupid or lose face in front of others. Yeah, that's a talent. Because sometimes we kind of like to make people look stupid in front of others and make them lose face. And then we think that makes us look very good because we're the authority who has the power to humiliate someone else. That is quite a disgusting attitude, isn't it? You know, it was clear uh, he liked his staff and believed in us. And his correction was designed to help us improve and reach our potential. John never gossiped or spoke harshly about another person behind their back. Okay, I'm glad John didn't do that. Mm, There's some others of us who are guilty of it. Yeah. And finally, if someone needed help with something he could reasonably do, he helped. In modeling these qualities for us, John set the stage for an entire mental health unit of people who worked hard and happily to help others. Those working underneath him went above and beyond what was expected of us, not because we had to, but because we wanted to. And that's a really wonderful, not just work environment, but living environment where people want to contribute. And I think, you know, that basically in our hearts, we do want to contribute. If you look, you know, young kids, they want to help. That they always go, you know, teach me how to do this. Show me how to do this. I want to help with this and that. Yeah, and and it's the, it's only kind of later on that we start judging. Oh well, I'm too good to do that. Yeah, only these kind of people do that. But when we were kids. We wanted to do that because we thought it was really cool to join in and help. So sometimes, you know, in growing up, we really learn the wrong things, I think. Yeah. We start putting all sorts of differentials. Who's the high status? Who's low status? Yeah. And then fit ourselves in and judge other people according to that. And that, you know, that creates... There are a lot of unhappiness personally. It creates a very unhappy society. Yeah. And so as much as we can uh, let all that classifying and strategizing, no, not strategy, making, stratifying, stratifying, thank you, stratifying uh, disappear, then, uh, you know, the happier we're going to be with everybody. Yeah, I remember one time in uh, Bogaya, there was, um, I was walking back somewhere and there was one beggar who uh, was begging and then he, it was really, really hot out and he fell down. And so I and a couple of other people went to help him and some other people came back and said, oh, don't go near him, just leave him, don't touch him. And I thought, what? You know, this is not what His Holiness just was teaching us. 
Okay. But, you know, often oh, well, they're, they're, you know, low-class people. We don't get involved in their problems. Okay. Similarly, cultivating compassion in ourselves and in our interactions with others can inspire the people around us to behave more compassionately. Research by psychologist Mario McCullincher, Philip Shaver, and their colleagues has shown that when our sense of attachment security is activated, he went. Uh, he talked about attachment security in the previous chapter. Okay. In other words, when when we have a, a feeling that we can rely on different people and they're there to support us, yeah. Um, when we grow up with that kind of feeling. So when that's activated, we are more likely to feel, think, and behave compassionately. Participants in these studies who were exposed to memories, pictures, and other reminders of helping interactions and securely attached relationships were more likely to experience empathy and compassion, engage in altruistic behavior, and to endorse values such as benevolence, uh, which is the concern for the welfare of others to whom we're close, universalism, genuine concern for others in the world. Okay. Yeah, interesting how they have to spend so much money doing all these studies of things that if we open our eyes and look around, it's evident. Yeah. Yeah, that when, the, when our mind is happier, you know, and we feel uh, supported and connected, then, of course, you know, it's much easier to be kinder to others and more compassionate. These studies repeatedly found that helping people bring secure attachment experiences to mind enabled them to connect with their own compassionate qualities. Now, that's interesting, because if people are out of touch with their own feeling of, of being supported and belonging, yeah, if we can help them to remember those experiences, then it has the effect of uh, their being more compassionate, which also means that when we make it a practice of ours to remember the the feeling of being connected and cared for by others, then we will behave more compassionately. Okay. So how much do we spend time uh, remembering ourselves the kindness we've received for others and feeling that sense of support and encouragement and security? And how much time do we spend thinking of all the times people have let us down and how dangerous the world is. It's interesting, isn't it? Where do we put our intention, attention? Because we've all had both experiences, but we can put our attention more on the, the experiences of, you know, being connected and feeling uh, encouraged and relaxed with other people, or we can put our attention on the times when, you know, others have been angry with us or we've been angry at them. Where do we put our attention? So I started doing one practice, um, especially during, uh, after the U.S. invaded um, Afghanistan. Maybe the U.S. doesn't invade other countries. We just send troops there. Okay. So after we sent troops there, um, yeah, uh, and I was reading stories about uh, Afghans uh, and especially children um, sleeping in tents in the middle of winter and sometimes the children, free, you know, freezing to death. Uh, so when I went to bed, you know, I was there in my bed with a nice comforter, yeah, in a room that had heat. 
in a safe place where nobody's going to harm me. And, and I thought of their situation, you know, living in the cold and in a war zone, effectively. And so I started um, focusing on my feeling of, of safety, yeah, and thinking and then giving that, you know, in my mind, may, may all of them feel this kind of safety and security that, you know, they're going to go to sleep and they're not going to freeze to death or parents who can go to sleep and they're not going to wake up with dead kid, dead babies beside them in the morning or, you know, just thinking about that and sending that, that kind of feeling to them. And I noticed that it really affected me, yeah, because it reminded me of those very same, of when I felt those very same feelings, yeah. So I'm sure that had a good effect on me. And, you know, I hope some of it reached them. I don't know. Okay, so this means that we can directly inspire a compassionate motivation in ourselves by thinking of people who make us feel safe, accepted, and cared for, or by looking at a picture, imagining one person helping another, or recalling a time when we were helped or when we helped others. So again, what do we put our attention on? That is going to influence you know, what we think about and how we feel. Knowing that uh, I, Russell, as a, uh, am a big fan of the Dalai Lama, a colleague gave me a picture of His Holiness looking kindly into the eyes of a somewhat haggard-looking man who was beaming back at him. That picture is on my office desk, and it has inspired me a number of times to be helpful to a student who appeared in my office unexpectedly, interrupting my work with a question or a respect, a, a request. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, these images can affect us. And I think that's one reason why we have altars, you know, because when you look at, at the you know, the expression on the Buddha's face, or if you have pictures of your teacher, you know, and the expression on their face, it reminds you of, you know, how you too have that ability to, uh, to feel like that. And so, you know, we may be just like a little hassled and you walk by your altar and there's the Buddha sitting there very peacefully. And all of a sudden you go, oh, yeah, I can come back to that. So he did that with the picture of his holiness. We can incorporate prompts into our lives that will help to stimulate our compassionate motivation. Pictures on the wall, photos or quotes in our wallets or on the, the bathroom mirror. <laughs> yeah. So instead of looking, how do I look? Will I impress people? You know, you, you have a quote on your, on your mirror or on our computer screens. Yeah. So I think it's quite interesting to see what people have on their computer screens. Yeah, it tells you something about them. This is, re is reflected in the way many of us engage in our daily spiritual practice using symbols and pictures of deeply compassionate beings that inspire us to imagine, think about, and aspire to the qualities these beings represent. So this is what's going on when we do uh, meditation on different Buddhist deities. Yeah, When you imagine Chenrezig with a thousand arms reaching out to sentient beings and a thousand eyes looking at sentient beings with compassion, it reminds us, oh, I can become like that. Yeah, when we see Manjushri, you know, with the, the text, the, um, you know, there's, there's different forms of Manjushri. The youthful Manjushri holds the Prajnaparamita uh, text to his heart. 
Yeah, the Arav Hassan Adim one holds the, the text is on a lotus, you know, that he's holding. I really like the image of holding the text to your heart because that text is like a number one, okay? And he holds a sword, you know, hewing down suffering, hewing down ignorance. And usually, you know, weapons, I'm like, eh, but I'm not afraid of that sword. Yeah, it's very clear. I mean, it's a sword. It has the fire of wisdom on the end. But it's so clear from Manjushri's expression that it's being used in a very compassionate way to help free our, free us. Yeah. So looking at these images, um, you know, and that's why we do the, the meditations. It, it affects our mind and reminds us uh, of these qualities. The more we find ways to connect with the desire to be compassionate, the more we'll establish these habits in our minds and brains so that over time, compassion will simply arise in us of its own accord. And we see some people that are like that. Yeah, they're just compassionate. As we've discussed, we can also become a secure base for others. It is not magic, and we don't have to be perfect, but we can help others feel safe, accepted, and inspired to act on their own compassion. Here are a few ways to do this. Okay? So remember, you do these out of a kind motivation, not because you want to be an example that everybody loves. Okay? So one thing, smile. Yeah? I think smiling actually is, is um, doctors should prescribe it. Yeah. I heard that they did one study that if people smile more, they feel happier. Yeah. And I think if we make it a habit to smile, um, you know, especially when we're seeing people, it, it changes something in our own heart. Yeah. And it automatically lets people know. Uh, as he says here, that we like them and we're glad to see them. Yeah. Rather than sometimes we see people, we, you know, it's just like that, you know, no expression. But it's different if somebody looks at you and smiles when they say hello. Yeah. And then sometimes people look at us with a scowl and then we're like, <laughs> okay. Okay, here so more ways to do this. Speak kindly and refrain from gossip and harsh speech. Well, that would be very easy if only people would act better and not do all these stupid things. Yeah? Uh, third is offer encouragement rather than judgment when we see others struggling. Yeah? And that's true, you know, rather than putting people down and criticizing, encourage them. Slow ourselves down. Okay, big letters. Yeah, slow ourselves down. Pause to listen when others speak. Rather than think of the next thing we'll say. Yeah. And ask questions to clarify our understanding. Yeah. So take time to really pay attention to what other people are saying and doing, what they're trying to communicate. Next, help others when we're able to. This doesn't mean grandiose gestures designed to focus attention on ourselves. Okay. But consistent, small, helpful actions let others know we will be there when and if they need us. Yeah. Often people don't need our help, but they're comforted by knowing that it is available if they do. So it's nice, just small things that we can do. You hold the door open for somebody rather than letting it slam in their face. Yeah, There's so many things. You're, you're driving, you let somebody in and you wave to them. There's so many ways to, to show just small things that 
can really affect people in big ways. Acknowledge others who are suffering, even if we aren't able to help them. So we may not be able to help them, but we can acknowledge their suffering. Yeah, recognize their humanity and offer a kind gesture or nod. Yeah, so we can, uh, yeah, recognize their humanity. Even we can't completely change their, their situation. I'm thinking of a story someone told me when he was in, uh, we had been talking in, in Dharma class about generosity and, and giving to people who were begging on the street. And he went to Berkeley, uh, you know, and had, uh, you know, I don't know, on a trip of some sort. And there's there were a lot of people sitting on the streets in Berkeley. And he said there was one woman, you know, just holding her tin bowl. And he, because uh, we, we were talking about in class about how to give and how, you know, you can give like that. Okay. Or you can give with both hands and put it in somebody else's hands. So he bent down and, you know, and gave her, you know, a dollar or two like this. And she looked up, and from um, her eyes, he could tell that what meant more to her than the money was the way he had given the money. Yeah, that he had looked at her, he had offered in a respectful way like that. Yeah. So often that, you know, that can be very, very powerful. Yeah, one time I was um, I was in teaching in a prison in Wisconsin, and uh, one of my friends who was the regular volunteer to that group um, was there too, and so we were sitting in a circle with the guys and you know having a discussion, and I kept I forget what we were talking about, but I kept on saying, "What do you think?" and "What do you think?" and you know, how about you? Because I wanted to hear their ideas because um, you can learn so much from them. And we had a really, really good discussion. And afterwards, I commented to my friend, boy, those guys were really engaged and they were really giving a lot. And he said, well, that's because you looked at them and you asked them what they thought. And they live in an environment where people don't look at them and people couldn't care less what they thought. Yeah. So I realized then that just, you know, in the correspondence with inmates and so on, just the fact of treating people, you know, them like you treat everybody else is a huge thing for people who are so used to being put down and cast aside. Yeah. Okay, when offering critical feedback, do so kindly rather than harshly, balancing genuineness with politeness, compassion, and encouragement. Okay, so that takes some work on ourselves very often, especially if what we've had modeled for us when we've been growing up is criticism, harsh criticism, instead of kind encouragement to change our, our behavior. I was staying at one family's house once, and they had a young child, a little boy, and I could hear in the back room the father was disciplining the child. I don't know what he did, but dad was scolding him. And then they walked into the room where I was, and dad was holding his little boy and cuddling him. And I thought, wow, you know, that's the way to do it. You scold and then you love. You know, because that wasn't when I was scolded as a child, I disappeared because if you didn't disappear, you were putting yourself in danger of getting more scolding. Okay. So. I just thought, wow, you know, the way this father is bringing up his child 
is creating so much trust, you know, that he he can be scold, but he, immediately there's love following it. Mm-hmm. And then uh, his last tip, Russell says, if we're more ambitious, we can make the commitment to become a secure attachment figure in someone else's life by becoming a tutor, mentor, big brother, or sister, or volunteering at a facility that supports and assists those needing help. I read somewhere, I can't remember what it was, because I I like reading books about inmates, you know, because I do that kind of work. Uh, But it was about... uh, one, I don't know if the guy was telling his story or what he observed, but anyway, the story was that they took some of the kids who were in juvenile hall, which are, you know, of course, the kids who act out and are all over the place, uh, and they had them go to a facility where there were handicapped people or other Otherly, otherly, other able people, and uh, and they were pushing the wheelchairs around, and it had this incredible effect on the kids as they were pushing somebody else around in a park, you know, looking at flowers, looking at trees. You know, because these kids, they never had the opportunity really to connect in kindness with people. And here they were able to offer kindness. And of course, uh, the people they were pushing in the wheelchairs uh, were very grateful and the kids felt it. Yeah, so just things like that. It's amazing what, what uh, yeah, what can happen when we take the time. Okay, then the reflection for this chapter is uh, called Spreading Compassion. So it's think of two things you could do this week, one to help inspire your own wish to be compassionate and one to help others feel safe, accepted, or acknowledged. And then do those things, those two things. Perhaps think of someone in your life, uh, a co-worker, a family member, um, or somebody who seems like they've been struggling lately. Make a point to have a kind connection with them today. Refrain from giving advice. Just let them know that you are there and that you care. So this is a very important practice. And um, I think here, especially at the Abbey, uh, when people come here, you know, some people come with a friend. Some people don't know anybody. They're coming into an environment where they didn't know anybody. They don't know how to behave, you know, in in a monastery. They feel a little bit antsy, you know. So I think it's especially important for the residents here to to reach out and take care of uh, the guests because we've all been in environments where we don't know anybody and we know what it feels like. So it's good to remember that. Okay, so we have a few minutes for questions and comments. Green light, good advice. Um, you talked about modeling mm-hmm. at the outset of, of your discussion. Mm-hmm. And I was reading a, a book by, um, I, I think, how do you pronounce his name? It's Chanyam Trumpa, um, mm-hmm. the founder of Shambhala. Mm-hmm. He wrote this back in the 70s, but he said, <clears throat> it was disappointing that who the the disappearing of role models mm-hmm. that how what are young people supposed to do and this was in the 70s mm-hmm. when there's just such a vanishing of role models either in a in a personal life or on a macro level mm-hmm. um and 
now it seems there where to me this is like one of the only places I could ever imagine where a person could come could connect with what 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 are some role models of people or practices mm. to aspire toward it used to be you'd go see in your in your town of a a senator or a congressman or a mayor or the president came, it was a big deal. And they would say, they would state values of aspiration or how our country is going to come together. But that's just such a void, which, so I just yeah. wanted to make that comment that yeah. it, it all kind of comes together for me personally here coming today that when they're, there aren't any in a public sense um you can always count on this mm. so just, thank you <laughs> thank you <laughs> yeah and it it shows the value of we can if we can't rely on the elected representatives or sometimes even the people in the church because churches have so many scandals now then we have to assume the responsibility ourselves personally to, to act with integrity and to speak with kindness rather than saying, oh, all these public fi figures can do it. You know, if they aren't, you know, we can't just say, well, I'm a little nobody, I can't do anything. Um, we can do something in the milieus in, in which we live and function. Um, a comment. It also depends on cultures, how people respond to you. Yes. I've noticed like being a, a Mexican, if you smile, it's like, uh, it's what it's expected. Mm -hmm. Not in, in Mexico City, perhaps, but in all <laughs> other cities, it's uh -huh. like what is expected. Mm -hmm. And here, it's like sometimes people like, don't know how to respond to you. Mm -hmm. If you smile, perhaps they think you're flirting even with this hair or whatever. <laughs> I don't know. It also depends yeah. on that, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, it, it depends on culture, I think. But it also, uh, yeah, I mean, some, because I didn't, I know my experience, sometimes people go, like that, but that's more not at my smile, but at how I otherwise look. Yeah. <laughs> um, but when I smile, you know, like if people are, you know, like, who's this bald headed lady, you know, walking around these weird clothes? Um, I find that if I smile, people usually relax. Yeah. It's the way to, yeah. I'm not dangerous. I, I don't, I don't think I look terribly dangerous. <laughs> You know, if there's a shaved head on a woman make you look dangerous. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in any case, it does kind of relax people if you smile. Okay. Okay, let's dedicate.